Well, we're in this season of Lent, which uh, if you're newer to the church or maybe this uh, type of pattern, uh, Lent is the 40 days leading up to Easter. We started it with Ash Wednesday a few weeks ago. And so each week we've been looking at different themes uh, and we're calling our series The Journey to the Cross. And I really needed a week off and so I dug to the bottom of the barrel and found my favorite preacher... Um, Dave Johnson has been at Church of the Open Door in Minnesota for, well, when you, you're not retiring, when you transition uh, in November, it'll be 38 years at one place. And he started there when he was 27, you do the math, so. Uh, so Dave and Bonnie, lured by our, our wonderful weather, and then it rained yesterday, but lured by our wonderful weather, uh, came down and uh, you guys have heard me quote Dave quite a bit, and I could go on and on, but I want to give his, him as much time as possible. So will you give Dave a Hope Covenant welcome this morning? Yeah, he whispered sweet nothings in my ear just now, and, and the sweetest thing was, just don't screw this up. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, uh, they did lure us, uh, but it wasn't the weather. It was actually uh, the Cubs. Um, <laughs> not really. It was you two. That's why we came. We love these guys, and um, there are certain people you just carry in your heart, and whenever you see them, you kind of light up a little bit, and that's what you are. And because of that, that's, we carry you in our heart as well, and, um, and your pastor, Paul. And Mary, think about that whenever we think about you or you, and um, just want you to uh, know that. Fourth Sunday of Lent, the journey toward the cross, with Jesus toward the cross, includes a lot of things, and I know some of the things you've already talked about, because that journey toward the cross includes, among other things, uh, service. Uh, it's, 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 it's a serving journey. Um, I think last week you talked about uh, gratitude or, or, or generosity. It's a generous journey, but I mean, you can't think very much about the journey with Jesus toward the cross without thinking about suffering. It's a, whew, it's an invitation into suffering, which is a kind of a tough sell, I think, come Suffer with me is what Paul actually said to Timothy, weird thing. How do you recruit somebody with that kind of line? But what I actually want to talk about today, and this kind of spins the whole suffering thing in a, in a kingdom way, and it's something we need to know as we're being invited to this journey of suffering, is that there's this bizarre connection all through the scriptures between suffering and joy. They're connected. We can't hardly see them that way, but they are. Rejoice and be glad, said Jesus to his raw recruit, recruit disciples in Matthew chapter 5, when, not if, but when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake, when people cast insults at you and lie about you, saying all manner of evil things against you falsely, rejoice and be glad. I grew up in church and I'm used to hearing those verses, and my Sunday school response to that is okay. My real response is no. <laughs> you can't make me rejoice um, and be glad when there's suffering. It isn't normal, it isn't real, it isn't possible. Um, but apparently, it is possible. Uh, particularly if you just stay in the story, because as Jesus died and rose again and commissioned his church, in Acts chapter 5, there's these two guys named Peter and John who heard Jesus say, rejoice and be glad when you're suffering, where in Acts chapter 5, they were given 39 lashes. It was a punishment doled out by the Jews. 40 lashes, save one, often was a death 
sentence. It didn't kill them, but it was designed to bring them close. It says in verse 41 of Acts chapter 5 that after they received 39 lashes, they went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing. Okay. Uh, but not happy. They didn't walk away from the council having received 39 lashes going, hey, one heck. No, it wasn't that kind of rejoicing, but rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for the name. That was good, they thought. That was, that was good, and they weren't the only ones, turns out. Because all through the scriptures, there is, again, this pattern, this Strange connection between suffering and joy, beginning as it does with Jesus himself, who kind of set the pattern for us, and now we're back on this journey with Jesus to the, to the cross, um, because Jesus, it was spoken of Jesus, that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. For joy, he endured the cross, the suffering of the cross, and he did it for joy. And then comes Peter and John rejoicing in Acts 5, as I just said, followed by Paul and Silas singing in Acts chapter 16, having been beaten with rods and then thrown into prison, their feet are in stocks. And then in the middle of the night, it says in Acts 16, 25, they began to pray and then to sing hymns of praise to God. What's that? Um, and then there's Paul, who in the book of Philippians says the strangest thing that among the many benefits, I love this one, among the many benefits, you guys, again, I'm, he's in his recruiting mode, you know, of being a follower of Jesus is that we not only get to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Okay. <laughs> Philippians 129. Uh, for to you it has been granted. You guys have just won the lottery here. <laughs> this very special privilege to not only believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, so rejoice and be glad. It sounds just so strange, but maybe the clearest and best example of this dynamic is found in the book of James, who in the epistle that bears his name is writing to a group of people who knew a little, suffering, who knew a little bit about suffering and pain, which gives this some credibility when I hear this from people who are actually going through suffering and pain, disappointment and loss. It has more Credibility, Indeed, in the very first verse, uh, James identifies the people he's speaking to as those who were dispersed. Look at it on the screen. James 1, verse 1. I, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm writing now to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. And the dispersion, the dispersion was literal. It was a physical thing. They had been scattered from their homes by persecution, so they were the scattered ones, having been driven from their homes. They had lost it all. I mean, get your head around that just a little bit. And the first thing he says to them, you'd think he'd tread a little more lightly, be a little more empathetic. He goes right for the center of this thing. First thing he says in verse 2, you guys, related to your dispersion, the fact that you've been scattered, lost it all, I'm going to give you some help. Put it all in the joy column. Um, consider all of these things that you're going through to be joy. Put them in the category that you would consider joy when you encounter various trials, when men cast insults at you and persecute you, maybe even flog you, 40 lashes save one, consider it joy. Which raises this question, at least it does for me. Actually, a few questions are raised for me. One is, who would do that? Um, who would sign on for that? Yeah, I'm in. I will say yes to 
that be able to find joy in that would be another one. I can maybe see, okay, but find joy in that. How do you do that? Rejoice and be glad when. Here's how it says, James, verse 3 and 4, you do it by knowing some things. Knowing this, he says. I think you see it on the screen. That the testing of your faith, brought on by various trials, uh, that he mentions in verse 1, produces something. Uh, so it isn't ever lost. It produces, among other things, endurance. Various trials, by the way, kind of dial into this, is um, a broader category in James than the persecution that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 5, that Peter and John were experiencing in Acts chapter 5. Because various trials, and this is where we kind of enter into the story, are just that. They are various trials, the kind that come in the course of life, of everyone's life that you are in right now in a variety of ways. Some people know about and some people don't. Consider them joy. Put, in them, put them into the category of things that you would consider to be joy. But to actually do that realistically, um, you're going to need to know some things, says James to these people. And what you're going to need to know is this, that the testing of your faith is not going to be wasted, um, brought on by these various trials. It produces something of value. In this case, James says, endurance. And if you let endurance, allow endurance to have its perfect result, to work its way out into your life, it says in verse 4, if you allow it to run its course in order to do in you what it's designed to do in you, it can produce in you a strength of character, such that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing, perfect and complete, lacking nothing. The word perfect is pretty intimidating, I think, so I need to clarify. It's really important that you know it is not speaking there of sinless perfection. It is not speaking there of a a kind of being flawless in some way, but to someone who is fully grown, to be perfect, complete, fully grown, well-rounded and whole as a human being, having all the necessary parts, in particular, all the necessary parts to actually do life. And life is hard. And if you're going to do that life, like your real life, there's going to have to be some character built, all the necessary parts to handle adversity, which is part of life. But this building of character and endurance is not automatic, James says. You have to allow this thing to do its work. You have to let it run its course in order to produce in you and me and sometimes as a community in us what these things are designed to do. Richard Rohr, in a a book he wrote entitled Everything Belongs, says this about this dynamic that we're talking about, that all great spirituality is about what we do with our pain. I didn't hear that in Sunday school when I was growing up in church. It's what we do with our various trials. So the first great lesson, he says, in life is to teach people not to run from it, which is what our instinct is. It certainly is mine. Indeed, to not get rid of it too soon. In fact, he uses the metaphor of Jonah and the whale to not get out of the belly of the whale too soon. Stay in there long enough for you to experience what you need to experience until you've learned what it has to teach you. So let endurance, back to James, so let endurance have its perfect results. You need to let it run its course so it can produce in you what it's designed to do. And 
This is why the poor, back to Rohr's quote, this is why the poor in many cultures have a head start on us relative to the development of character and their soul because they can't resort to the quick fix and just make it go away with an aspirin or a trip or a new this or a new that. Um, it's a fascinating story in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 48, it's about a city named Moab. It's a weird name for a place. There's a lot of weird names in the Bible. It's part of why I love it, all these weird names. Um, and it's about to come under judgment, and the reason is fascinating. According, because according to uh, Jeremiah 48, verse 11, it says this, Moab had been at ease since its youth. Now, this is a city. Think of it as being a person, if you will, as well. Moab had been at ease since its youth, undisturbed on his lees, like wine on its dregs, Okay, dregs or lees refers to, and some of you know this, it's the sediment in the wine that settles to the bottom of the vat of wine, the process of making wine, purifying wine, and, and, the, and the, the process, and I don't know a lot about it, but I know enough to explain this, was that you would pour out the wine and then let the dregs settle to the bottom, and then you pour it out again, and the dregs would then settle to the bottom, and he'd pour it out again, and over and over it would be poured out until the sediment all came to the bottom, and all the dregs were gone, and Moab, however, like a spoiled child, you probably know people like this, we've tried to even raise people like this, never any struggle for our kids, no, uh, no, no, Moab, like a spoiled child, never did get poured out, um, never felt the heat, Never had to go through anything difficult at all so that now he's pretty useless. <laughs> Sad to say, it's a hard thing to say, pretty useless. Indeed, the text says he smells like himself. Wow. <laughs> um, verse 11 actually says it this way. Neither has he been emptied from vessel to vessel, nor has he, been, nor has he gone into exile. Therefore, he retains his flavor. His aroma has not Changed. Pretty graphic language. You smell like you. <laughs> um, yeah. But the point is this. The point is what, what he smells like, or the city Moab smells like, is he still smells bitter. The undrinkable. Of little use to anybody else. In part because no suffering. He never got poured out. Nor character either. But one more thing that, that James adds. While James says there's some things we need to know if we're going to enter into and understand this connection between suffering and joy, there's also some things we need to allow. It says in verse 4 of James chapter 1, let endurance have its perfect result. You're going to have to allow some things because the fact is this, and you know this is true as well, not everyone who goes through suffering comes out with character. I mean, you know that. I mean, just because somebody gets poured out, they don't automatically become a person of character. You know that's true. And the reason, at least in part, is that we have grown quite skillful at avoiding the heat, um, blaming someone else for the heat, not feeling the heat, escaping the heat in a variety of ways, the result being this, that while we've gone through a trial, all right, um, and experienced some sort of suffering, we're still just as bitter, and you know people like this, and hopefully it's not you, but maybe this is to be a time to deal with this, but still bitter and angry and blaming and shallow and empty as you ever were or we ever were, which means if you're ever going to make this connection, understand uh, and actually experience a strange connection between suffering 
and joy, you're going to need to know some things, allow some things, you're going to need to value some things, particularly things like character and endurance and integrity and depth, because if you don't care about those things like that, you're never going to say yes to this journey that we are on as a church. You'll never allow it, you'll never be willing to carry it, and you'll never understand, again, the strange connection between suffering and joy. Now, I'm going to take all of that stuff and push this whole thing a little bit further and ask you to wonder with me about this, to actually move beyond right now in the talk, as we kind of even prepare ourselves for the table, to move beyond the enduring of suffering and considering it joy to the choosing of suffering. This is weird. Hang with me. The choosing of suffering for someone else's joy, which again sounds a little strange, at least at first, but it's simply choosing to do something that might cost you something um, so that someone else might experience joy, so that someone else might be healed, so that someone else might be helped. I'm going to choose to go through something that might cost me something so that someone else might be housed or fed or clothed or encouraged or given hope or even come to know Christ, to be redeemed, and this is the real question. On the fourth Sunday of Lent, I think, not just what are you giving up for Lent, that's the big thing, you know, around Lent, um, but what are you and what would we be willing to suffer for someone else's joy? It's called redemptive suffering, actually. This thing I'm talking about here, it's embodied in Christ most clearly, who for the joy set before him, Hebrews 12, verse 2, endured the cross. It was for joy that he endured the suffering of the cross, which means he chose suffering for joy, but not his own. For the joy set before him, the joy wasn't his. He wasn't on the cross going, not bad. Uh-uh, uh-huh, <laughs> you know. No, 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 he endured that suffering, not a, good, not a good thing about it, for someone else's joy and not his own. It was for yours and mine. And whoo, take, that takes your breath away. That's take your breath away stuff. He chose it for joy, thus establishing this pattern I'm talking about, into which we have all been called as followers of Jesus. Paul says it this way in Philippians 2, verse 5, have this attitude in you, which was also in Christ. He didn't do us. He didn't die on a cross to, so we wouldn't have to. He died to show us how to give our life away. So have this attitude in you, my followers, that was also in Christ, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, which meant he would suffer, becoming obedient unto death, even death on the cross. And then Philippians 3, verse 10, he personalizes it. That's Paul personalizes it, speaking now for himself, as he identifies the overriding passions of his life. It's like, these are the things that keep me going. It's it's this, that I may know him, that is Christ, and the power of his resurrection, and also the fellowship of his sufferings. Hmm. Hmm. And not just the sufferings that came to me, says Paul, like they come to everyone, because life is hard, involving various trials, But he's talking about the sufferings that came to him because he chose to do a certain thing and live a certain way for someone else's joy so that someone else might be helped and 
healed and fed and housed and encouraged and given hope in eternity and redeemed. A word about the fellowship. This, this word, the fellowship of sufferings. I love this thing because the word, the fellowship of sufferings. Again, a verse I've heard all my life growing up in church, whatever that means, sounds a little weird. Um, but I think we know more about what this thing is than we think we do. Um, because it simply refers to a group of people who, because of a shared experience, and you know about this, uh, a common passion, because of the shared experience or common passion, are in a fellowship of sorts. One way to describe it, and this is the way I've done this before, is like sometimes at the, on the, at the halftime of a football game, like the Vikings or the Cardinals, you guys have the Cardinals, you know, every once in a while they'll bring out the old guys who used to play, remember? Or you know, maybe a Super Bowl team or something, they'll bring them out and they'll put them in the middle of the field and they're walking out in there, walking like this, you know, and... And, but, but they come out and everybody in the stands is cheering them and we're honoring them. And here's the deal about those guys who actually played the game back in the day, whenever they did it, they have a fellowship. Um, and in the fellowship, if you actually played the game, there is this knowing that everybody who's cheering for them, they don't know. I mean, we watched them and we cheered, but if you played, you kind of know because you did the deal. You played the game. You paid whatever price it was to play, sometimes through injuries um, and all sorts of other stupid things. Um, uh, and, and, and the things that you did as a team, as a person, were things that others can only look at and admire because they don't know. They don't, they're not in the fellowship. And it's even if you've been around those kind of people who've been in something or through something, often happens in military things as well. It's maybe even more common there where you've gone through something together and you come out bruised and bleeding, but there's a conversation that comes out of that that if you didn't go through that, you can't get in the conversation because you, you didn't do it there in a fellowship. And when the fellowship gathers, um, whether it be football or military or whatever, uh, you, you know what they do, among other things. They sit around and they tell stories of what it felt like to play and what it, what it cost them to play. And I'm not talking about football anymore. What it cost them to live the way they lived, the way they chose a different way of living and what they gave away. And, um, and if you didn't play, get into the game that is the kingdom of God, um, you have no stories to tell. I mean, you might admire those who do um, and you might cheer, but you don't. You don't know. See, here's the deal. And again, this may sound weird at first. The only opportunity that any one of us will ever have um, to willingly choose suffering for someone else's joy or healing or housing or hope-giving or redeeming is this side of eternity. It's the only chance we're going to get to live this way because on the other side, obviously, no more suffering. Not even for joy. Um, But there will be a fellowship. Holy moly. There will be a fellowship. A fellowship of ordinary men and women, not just Paul and Peter and James and John, but of ordinary women like you and like me, like us, who in a variety of ways, in their ministries, in their marriages, in their families, communities, churches, friendships, in their workplaces, said, I will go and give and serve and care and suffer, if need be, for other people's joy. The Apostle Paul will be in this fellowship. We all 
know that, but some of you will be as well. I don't think you, you maybe know that. Um, and in the fellowship, we'll be doing what people do when they're in a fellowship, like old army buddies uh, whose conversation you never quite fit in because you weren't an army person, uh, but in the kingdom of God on that day, like our army buddies who actually went through the war, the fellowship on the other side will start, start telling stories um, of the things that you suffered for joy. But here's another thing I'm pretty sure about. Like a lot of old army buddies, most of you will be too shy to tell your story. You really will. Or, or, or you'll have a tendency to think, compared to that, I didn't do anything, you know. Like you'll just minimize whatever it was that you gave away for free, so we'll tell stories about each other. Tell it's going to work. I know this. God told me. I'm just kidding. Okay. <laughs> He's making me nervous. Uh, um, I, do, I, I do think that. In the fellowship, we're going to start telling stories about each other. Let me tell you about Doug and Heidi and Paul and Mary, your pastors, um, uh, because he, as we tell these stories of each other, we were there and we saw how, how much it cost you telling a story of someone else because we were there and we saw what it cost you to stay in that church or what it cost you to stay in that marriage for as long as you did, that church as long as you did. See, we were there and we saw. You didn't know we were watching, but we saw what it cost you to raise that child who was sick from day one, to care for that aging parent when the roles were reversed because now you're changing their diapers. (sighs) And nobody was saying thanks. But we saw what you suffered for someone else's joy. We were there and we saw how much it cost you to love that neighbor who wasn't very lovable. And we saw what it cost you to work with those kids for all those years to love that person who never loved you back, who never said thanks. We saw, and you're in the fellowship, you'll be surprised maybe when someone else starts telling your story. I think of parents and teachers and coaches and counselors and people, lots of ordinary people who often, at great expense to themselves, literally give themselves away, trying to create environments where other people can live better than they have um, and grow and succeed and sometimes provide just a glimpse of hope for to you it has been granted not only to believe in him but to suffer for his sake, for the sake of others. One day an angel came to a young girl named Mary and said to Mary, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb, Jesus, for to you it has been granted. To have the life of God come to you, be planted inside of you, grow inside of you, and come out of you, but Mary, you will suffer. Um, Because this life in you, the the metaphor of pregnancy is powerful for this this thing, because the life of God that's planted in her, if you've been pregnant, and some of you have, I always tread lightly when I'm talking about a pregnancy metaphor that I get. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But it is an incredible picture because the life that's planted in you, and we're all excited, it 
problem is that life stretches you and changes you. It's going to scar you, hurt you. It will mark you. Sometimes it will embarrass you, uh, maybe cause Joseph even to leave you. Her response, be it done unto me. Um, she chose suffering for joy, but not her own. Um, and it goes on and on. So Mary's in the fellowship. Um, and again, so are many of you, though, again, most of us would tend to discount it. I'm not a Paul. I'm not a Mary. You live ordinary lives. I think of women. Going back to this pregnancy thing, mothers who physically have literally said yes to suffering for joy when they give birth to a child. I think of my wife down here. She's embarrassed. Now I didn't know I was going to single you out. Who, who not only said yes to that process of giving birth four times, um, but the thing that's interesting to me as I've seen it over the years, to this day in ways that our children uh, do not see and do not understand, they're not aware of this at all, she enters into things and carries things and feels things and suffers things, quite frankly, for those four kids, and she does it for joy, but not her own. Um, she's in the fellowship. When we invite people to serve in our church, you know, come serve the, you know, kids ministry or something like that, we, 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 I remember we used to do this, we don't do it so much anymore, but we would try to sell it, like how do you get people involved and do ministry while you sell it by telling them what's in it for you, how you will be blessed and it's going to be so great and da, 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 da. I'm not saying there's a bad thing to do, but I, I would just, we have tried this. Um, how about opportunities for suffering? <laughs> Next Friday at 6, you know. Uh, we're looking for people who are willing to suffer for someone else's joy. Actually, I think that would get a hearing. I, I, I do love it when Peter, or where Paul in 2 Timothy 2, 3 says to Timothy, Paul says to Timothy, and it is, I think, his recruitment speech. I love it that he says this. He says, hey, Timothy, come suffer for hardship with me. Come on, let's go do this thing. And again, I think, how do you sell that thing? Who would sign on for that thing? And Paul said, well, if he was here, he would say, um, I did. And I would do it again. And I would do it for joy. See, the message today isn't really a message at all. It's a question. And the question is this. Uh, what would you, what would we as a community? And you're already into this. I already know enough about you to know that you're into this. But what would we be willing to suffer for joy, but not our own, for someone else's. And when you enter into that, you're actually in the kingdom. And all of that brings us now to the table. Because everything I'm talking about here is at this table um, of communion. Because among the things that we remember, remember me, remember the body that is broken, remember the blood that is shed, what is remembered, among other things, is that he chose suffering for joy, but not his own. For hours. Let's go to the table. <laughs> Thank you, Dave. And in a moment, we will go to the table. We're going to, as we've been doing every week through this season of Lent, we've been including the communion table in our ending time where we will worship through singing worship through uh, receiving communion. There's a prayer 
board in the back that perhaps you even want to bring some of your prayers uh, and things that you want to lift before God and have us agree with you on. But in all these ways, as we begin to move to any of these places of, and ways of worship in the next few moments, um, I want to invite us to the communion table and carry that question uh, and ask Jesus, um, what are you calling me to enter into suffering, sacrifice for? Uh, that would bring life and hope and joy to someone else. Um, so it's with grateful hearts that we come to the table. And it's an invitation to identify with Christ in his sufferings. And I always wonder what his followers thought on that night where he was betrayed. As maybe they were telling stories. They'd been together three years now. And it's Passover. It's a big deal. And they're in Jerusalem. It's the Mecca of <laughs> um, where you want to be at this time in this season. And I bet they were telling stories around that table that we now call the Last Supper because they didn't know what was coming tomorrow. Jesus had told them over and over, but um, that very night that Jesus was betrayed in that meal, he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat and do this and remembrance of me. And then after supper, he took the cup, and when he had um, given thanks, he held up the cup, and he would have it'd been a common cup. He would have held it up, and I can just picture him with his disciples. He blesses the cup, and he said what must have sounded like the most odd and strange thing. This cup is the new covenant in my blood which will be poured out for the forgiveness of the sins of many. And that's you and that's me. And he said, take and drink and do this in remembrance of me. And so now as we move into this time where we will worship and reflect and connect with the Lord, where we will sing and receive communion, communion stewards, if you would take your places. Father, will you speak to our hearts as you invite us into this sacred space, this sacred moment? Um, will you, out of hearts of gratitude even, will you help us to even be prompted and hear from you the places, the ways that you are calling us to partner and be in the fellowship with, with you? And then will you remind some of my brothers and sisters, even as they go through this, the ways that you're saying, I see you. <laughs> I see that thing you do. I see the way you love and serve. Will you, will you give your yes to them in that as well? In Jesus' name, amen.